I'm Jeff Cook. And I'm TJ Wilson. And this is Around the Circle. I'm walking slowly. is a map of the human personality. It's a tool for navigating relationships, creates language for what motivates us and helps us look at the way we look at everything else. Most importantly, the Enneagram is a mirror because sometimes you need help seeing yourself. My name is Jeff Cook. I'm a philosopher in Greeley, Colorado, and with me is TJ Wilson, businessman, lover of theology, and Enneagram ninja. Hello. My man. Hey. We got two guests back. Hooray. The Malia and Sean Palmer are with us. How are you guys doing today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. How are you, Malia? Hi. Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. We are discussing a movie about political strife, which is going to be very different from our world right now. Um, But we are talking about the Black Panther. Malia, what's your favorite thing about this movie? My favorite thing about this movie is um, the uh, Nokia and also the soundtrack. I was pretty obsessed with the soundtrack in eighth grade. Sure. Now there are two soundtracks, yeah? Yeah, I think so. The like big movie soundtrack that like Kendrick Lamar curated was the one that I was obsessed with in middle school though. Wonderful. That yeah. that's the first I've ever heard of this. So that's <laughs> that there's two? No, that that's what she was obsessed with in middle school. So oh. I am Yeah, for a solid couple months in eighth grade. I'm totally killing it as a father. <laughs> TJ, you got a favorite thing about this movie? I mean, this is what our whole thing is about, but I I really like complex antagonists. It's not a clear black and white in this movie. And the heroes, the the protagonist, his journey is not just saving the day, but it's actually going through a profound change that's really interesting to me. Like it's it's just a it's a better story than a lot of these kind of hero stories. Yeah. What you say, Sean? Um, mine's a kind of along the lines of TJ. I didn't pay very much attention to the soundtrack. But uh, like I said in the first episode, one of the things that's just super awesome to me about this movie is that the way, the way it treats African culture and the way it honors it and dignifies it and doesn't patronize it or paternalize it. And like that, I think, is just incredibly both beautiful and uh, meaningful for for me and lots of lots of other folks. Bang. My philosopher itch is scratched very well by this movie in which there's lots of different competing political philosophies and it's not necessarily resolved at the end. Lots of great opinions being said by praiseworthy people and it kind of leaves you, okay, I'm going to process this. Right. Wonderful. The story of Eric Killmonger, who for this podcast we're going to refer to as Njataka because that's how... He identifies himself throughout the rest of the movie. This is a hero's story. If I were just to tell you the beats, this is a story that you and I would probably go, yep, that's just a classic, you know, Marvel Star Wars-y kind of kind of tale. Joseph Campbell, hero's journey sort of thing. Yeah. There's a young man whose father pursues justice, and yet one day he is killed by his older brother, 
who wants to hoard wealth and power for himself and his land. And the young man, seeing his father murdered, decides to train for years so he can rise up and take the throne of his father's family. Not for his own sake, but for the sake of the many millions who he represents and has seen suffered. He vanquishes then a great enemy of his people, earning a confrontation with the king, who is in truth his cousin, uh, the son of the man who killed his father. He identifies himself as a prince, and he challenges his cousin, who is likewise hoarding wealth and power, and he defeats the king in battle, and then he uses the wealth and technology of his homeland to fight against forces of oppression around the globe. That doesn't sound like a villain's story. Dude, that's a great way to talk about his story. You know, in movie making, and I'd love to hear, especially like TJ talk about this, like in movie making, there are all of these things that happen in storytelling that clue you in to who is the quote, good guy and bad guy that aren't explicit. And if you just strip those things away, you get a much different take like actually one of my favorite tv sitcoms is is scrubs Mm, nice and i don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen scrubs they kind of have this ending where there's like indie music in the background and there's like the lesson to be learned the voiceover yeah yeah yeah. so i heard bill lawrence talk about this recently and apparently in the at the height of scrubs some publishers came to him and asked hey we would love to put those little life lessons at the end of the episodes into a book and then publish that book for people. Hmm. And they thought, Oh, that's a great idea. And so they went back and looked at them and like the actual writing. And he realized like, once you take away the slow motion montage and the wind blowing people's hair and the, the indie music in the back, he says, a lot of that made no sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> Cause it, it's a wrap up of the story that has just been told and without the story, then it's it's nothing. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. There's no context. And without the uh, accoutrement of storytelling that mm-hmm. signals to the viewer like how you should feel about someone. Right. There there are beats in these speeches, like in within the wrap up itself, there are beats that are punctuated by us seeing that point being made on screen. Right, right. And so like what Jeff just did about in Jadaka, like if you were, if someone were to eulogize him at his funeral and say that you would think what was wrong with that guy? Right. He's a hero. Yeah. Yeah. That's just fascinating to, to hear it stripped of all of the storytelling elements that tell that signal to us that we should feel other about him. Yeah. How we see who is the hero in the story and who is the villain is real interesting. And if you didn't hear Sean's fantastic take on this in the first podcast, you should go back and listen to it. But I think that is what the filmmaker does is there's a couple of moments where this Enneagram eight is going to severely misstep. And I think he missteps because of his type. There's a lot of control issues that overtake him in moments where he needs to make a real hard moral decision and those are elevated in a way that that make him the villain. Right. If you could take away the vengeance part of his character, he would be a hero, no question. Yep. I'll I'll elevate those especially when we get to the places where he comes into security and that's going to be a big part of what we're talking about today. Do you want to um do the quick refresher TJ on uh eights 
going to the low side of security? Yeah, so uh, that's what this whole series is about, finding villainy in the low side of our security points. So when eights are in the groove, when they know what's going on, when they are comfortable in their space, they can move toward two and pick up some of the qualities there. And when they do that in unhealthy ways, they are going to do things that are for your own good, whether you like it or not. Would you say, TJ, because, and this is one of the things that I've been kind of thinking about through eights, that eights, when they go to the low side of five, Mm -hmm. just become adversarial and have a difficult time knowing who their potential allies are because everyone is seen as an adversary. Is that fair? Is that what happens with Injotica? Like, because what you said about vengeance, I think is important. If he shows up in wakanda and he says i'm your cousin your long lost cousin and these are the things that i've seen and this is what i think we ought to do mm-hmm. and comes in at a much more i in a much more ironic place do things go south or because he has so conditioned himself motivated by vengeance mm-hmm. he sees everyone as adversarial and you're either a hundred percent with me or a hundred percent against me yeah and and maintaining that that space of control like when when eights go to five in in healthy ways they can let go of that of some of that control like it's a it's almost a withdrawal and saying okay i don't need to be in charge of this uh when they're in a an unhealthy space that control element just sort of amps up and says no one will be able to do this and i have to Mm -hmm. because everyone is against me you got thoughts on that, Malia? Yeah, I think especially with the the character of, of Injadaka, he gets to a place where he becomes like very solitary. And he thinks that only he can do what needs to be done and everyone else is in his way. But yeah, that like everyone is adversarial. And there is no, he does not present ever as being open to looking for allies and even more so like the the allies that he might use are actually dispensable yeah like the way he treats his girlfriend the way he treats claw anyone that that might come to his side they only serve a purpose Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i would love to talk about whether or not that's true of his father in this next scene and jodic is going to take the herb is going to go to the ancestral plane going to have a very heartfelt conversation with his father just as T'Challa did and here we see him it's all purple it's the color of Wakanda but they are in Oakland and Njobu sees uh, his son Najataka is not his adult self here he's his young self which is a real interesting choice as well and he's and he goes through the panel that where all of their contraband was hidden his father says, What did I tell you about going into my things? Hmm? What did you find? The home. Yes, the sunsets there are the most beautiful in the world. But I fear you still may not be welcome. Why? They will say you are lost. But I'm right here. And then Njobu begins to cry. I want to pause there for a minute. Why is his father crying? I'm supposed to compliment this. He says, No tears for me? 
Everybody dies. It's just life around here. That might also make you emotional as a parent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, um, you know, there's always something to be lost, right? So in Jobu goes and he finds this great mission out in the rest of the world. But he knows that to take on this mission means abandoning something of what Wakanda is. And to do that is an abandonment of self. And so um, there's lost and then there's losing. Mm. To make the choices that he makes does cause him to lose some things of home. And it's almost like anyone who goes on any great spiritual journey, right? Any child, right, who grows up and goes on their own spiritual journey, they go on a, all of us go on a journey that no one else in the world can join us in on some level. And we will find people along that path who resonate with different parts of the journey, but ultimately it's ours and ours alone. And there's a losing, there's a falling away that is grief worthy in all journeys, but is also necessary in the process of becoming. And I do think when you see um, in Jadaka there in the ancestral plane as a child, like you didn't see T'Challa as a child, there's a kind of arrested development that at this moment halted who he was forever. And he is acting in the world as a little boy would act, but who had the training and physicality of a deadly adult male. And like, that's the danger in all Enneagram journeys, right? That that childhood wound, like how long do we let that go walking around in an adult body before we decide, and we have to decide to grow up, like to, and, and by that, I mean, to not, to no longer be defined by that wound. Uh, you know, um, F. Laurent Schultz uses this great image of facing the world that we all have ways that we face the world to not let the childhood wound be the way we face the world. That's the growth place. And like, you know, every, every parent in the world knows, right. You're going to damage your children in some way, right? Like you're going, you're going to cripple your children in some way, but the best thing you can do knowing that is, a, is giving them the space to grow into an adult with their wound. Right. And like, he never had that, that night where his father died, his formation stopped in turn for his internal world. The only thing that changed was his physical formation. I love that. Is that, and that's what the director is trying to show us. Yeah. yeah. And how fitting talking about Jadaka as an eight, because one of the things that, that we know about eights is their outward expression of strength is in large measure to protect the the vulnerable child within. Mm-hmm. Mm. And this is what I say, which gets me in a lot of trouble, but I'm I'm committed to it until I change my mind. <laughs> which is eights project strength, but the rest of us don't need to confuse the projection of strength with actual strength. And we do them and us a disservice. He he is actually he's got a strong orientation to the world, but he's actually not a strong person because on that low side where everything becomes adversarial, there's only one way to get things done. Right. And like what you said last time, 
TJ about ones wanting to do it the right way and eights want to do it my way. Like mm-hmm. nothing has splintered in my mind for a type as much as hearing that one sentence and like hmm. how true that is. Well, this is, I mean, this is part of the wisdom for eights and learning to grow is that, that vulnerability is not weakness and, and, and projection of strength does not necessarily mean actual strength. Mm-hmm. Uh, oftentimes strength is allowing your vulnerabilities to show. Right. I think Unjobu knows all these things because his next line is, I should have taken you back long ago. Instead, we are both abandoned here. And then Jataka says, well, maybe your home is the ones that's lost. That's why they can't find us. What do you see there, Malia? I mean, Njobu recognizes that Njotika is stuck, right? And that he has kind of been left in this, like, horrible moment he experienced as a kid. And he feels that, like, he did Njotika a, a disservice by putting them in a situation where this would happen. And Jataka really flips that on his father and basically says, like, we both know that, like, Wakanda isn't perfect. And that's why they can't find us is, like, this real, there's this real desire that the younger Jataka would have been taken and taken care of by Wakandans. This feeling of, like, that nobody looked for me and they should have. And, and that's literally what happened, though, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. like they kill his dad and they just kind of leave him. Like, do you see, you know, you guys uh, as, you know, at this point in life, looking back, like, do you see just some father-son stuff happening there as well? Like, like every parent in the world knows when I make a decision, as much as it is about the way I see the world, like whatever my type is, whatever I'm doing, like that has a cascading effect on my children and they are inheriting my decisions. You know, here is Njobu who has been cradled, right, in Wakanda and knows, you, you get that scene at the end where they talk about the sunset and Wakanda being beautiful. Like he knows the beauty of Wakanda, but his son only knows the terror of Wakanda because of what happened to his father and like the the, the grief and regret of like, you only see one side of a really complicated issue because it struck you so profoundly and so deeply. And like, there's a touch of grief in that. And what I see in you, son, is that your zeal for revenge has shaped you in ways that have misformed you. And, and as a parent, Njobu must recognize that par- at least part of why Njadaka is in this state of arrested development is because of Njobu's decisions. Right. Only bad parents don't realize how their decisions have messed up their own children. <laughs> right? like, like from, from, the, from the moment of conception, right? Like you didn't choose to be here and you didn't choose all these, where we live and where you went to school and all these other things. A good parent always carries a measure of responsibility for like children are like glass, right? Like you can't handle them without leaving your fingerprints. Mm. That's what I see. And if you if you could see your child as a 
an adult who has become consumed with vengeance to the point that it's so crucial to his identity that he marks his body with the people that they've killed. Mm. Um, how could you not but grieve that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to know that he got his, the, the idea that formed in his mind that killing people was the way to peace and justice came from the guns I had stored in my house. Like, why are you looking through my things? Like you have adopted, you have become the full embodiment of what I believe. Mm-hmm. Like you are this flower grown to its fulfillment. I, I think I think you're putting your finger on exactly where what the director is kind of trying to showcase and what's what's taking place with the character here. Because like what we talked about last time, right? Is like this is an extended family disagreement. Yeah. Yeah. About right. how we steward the resources of the family. Yeah. This is part of that disagreement, father to son. And it's not just T'Challa and T'Chaka who are having that disagreement. It's Njobu and 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 Jadaka also have their part in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And so it would be really interesting just to go to rewatch Black Panther through the lens of this very old story and storytelling, right. Of fathers and sons. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't, I don't know if there's any traffic that's been Mm -hmm. uh, gone over more, any terrain that's been gone over more in storytelling than fathers and sons. Apparently it has power in people's creative life. (laughs) (laughs) I do like the angle here and I don't, I don't, I think this feels unique because of Kugler's approach. It's the question, if Wakanda actually existed, how would I feel? And I think he's really allowing that to come out in this character over and over again. The anger that he would feel at being abandoned, at feeling like an orphan is coming out in this scene. Yeah. I've thought about that question because it's such a good one. Like, I don't know. We talked about this last time, but just betrayed Yep. And that has a whole different truckload of emotional baggage to it as well. I don't know that we've talked about betrayal and eights, but y'all want to... TJ, what's the skinny on eights and betrayal? Don't do it. It's bad news. <laughs> <laughs> eights don't like it. They're, uh, that's, I mean, that's, that's part of the whole thing with um, protecting vulnerabilities and, and making sure that they appear strong. And, and it's because of a sense of betrayal, a fear of betrayal. And, and when they experience betrayal, it breaks the, the possibility of relationship. It takes a very, very healthy eight to be able to get over that sense of betrayal. I imagine in this scene, Unjobu is betrayed his son by dying. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean there? I would feel abandoned as a orphan. It wouldn't matter. My my parent was murdered. I would feel abandoned as a as a orphan. I'm sure that's true. I'm not sure that they get into that with his story much. Like that I like maybe a couple of lines sprinkled throughout the film, but it, it seems like he channels all of that sense of betrayal into the murder of his father. Yeah. I, I suppose it's the case. His lack of emotion at seeing his father is where I'm. I, I suppose I'm saying that. Mm, sure. But I think you're right. The protective side is I'm going to shut down my emotions. The where do I take all of this anger? It's well, I'm going to I'm going to go kill some folks. Like it, it's it's a it's a total separation. Like 
when his father, who he has not seen since his childhood, says, what, no tears for me? He says, everyone dies. That's feeling repression. Right. And, and, and a sort of divorce from the attachment of our relationship. And I would say, because I've had so much of my head inside of stances for the last year, that that is like classic feeling, that's classic feeling repression, like no tears for me. Hmm. I've already cried all my tears for you. Like I'm not revisiting that now. And like the tears feel like weakness. Mm -hmm. And this is a time for strength. Yeah. And I don't know that everyone, that people who aren't in a, in the aggressive stance fully understand that for aggressive stance people, tears do actually feel like weakness, not just vulnerability, like someone's going to attack me, but like this is draining to like, like five minutes of crying for three sevens and eights is exhausting for the rest of the day. And it's a liability that they can't afford at if something big has to be done. Hmm. Last word on this scene, Malia. I think the uh, the film shows us a lot of Indijok here and not just the feelings of repression, but as he's made himself so cold to others um, that even like seeing his father and like kind of the source of this original wound, like he answers that with kind of coldness and detachment. And I think it's, I think it's important that this is with his father at the scene of his death, right, in that same apartment. And there's this place where the unhealed wound could really easily be ripped open again. And I think that's a lot of the reason for Njidaka's seeming detachment. We know, the viewer knows, that he hasn't gotten over it. But I think he has convinced himself that it doesn't, quite plague him emotionally the way it does when in reality it's the it's the core memory right yeah he know he knows that he wants revenge but he or he thinks he wants revenge because he feels like he's been betrayed not because he feels like he's lost mm-hmm so you know how we talk about the coping style with eights, right? And that coping style, I'd love to hear you guys respond to this. That coping style being to put up resistance or boundaries against external threats. So the emotion itself is an external threat. Yeah. Um, no, totally. I think that's that's spot on. Um, yeah. Especially like the, the more and more unhealthy eights get, emotion is a vulnerability allowing your oneself to experience those emotions is something that threatens to harm your uh, perception of strength, to harm your your ability to get things done, your effectiveness in the world, the ability to change the world into the way that you see it. Emotion is a is a weakness that has to be guarded against. Yeah, to push into coping style for eight, we're going to see that let me actually save it for this next scene because I think the coping style comes out as well as the low side of security here in the next scene. But interestingly enough, on the feeling repression, Njataka wakes up and burns the herbs, which has twofold meaning. It's one, there's not going to be uh, any other kings. And two, I'm not talking to my dad ever again. Mm. And wow. those both strike me as real interesting. And the so the figure of him in total darkness against a lit silhouette of burning herbs, 
I think is one of those places that the, the director really wants to elevate this soul in the dark. Shoot, he might be in hell because it's, it's under the earth and, it, and it's on fire. Is that also a uh, orientation to time? We're only thinking about the future. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm eliminating threats, right? So there won't be any, it won't be Shuri or anyone else who might have a claim to the throne. M'Baku, like we, that, this will never happen again. And the past doesn't matter. You know, I, I, some men only want to watch the world burn sort of thing. Yeah. I think the past doesn't matter is spot on. We're starting over again is the next scene. He'll explicitly say, you know, in in that way that the worst kinds of tyrants will, everything before us is erased. It's all starting with me. Because he comes into the council chamber and again, directorial choice that the camera flips upside down. You know where I'm from? When black folks started revolutions, they never had the firepower or the resources to fight their oppressors. Where was Wakanda? Hmm? You know how that ends today. We got spies embedded in every nation on Earth, already in place. I know how colonizers think, so we're gonna use their own strategy against them. We're gonna send vibranium weapons out to our war dogs. They'll arm oppressed people all over the world so they can finally rise up and kill those in power and their children and anyone else who takes their side. It's time they know the truth about us. We're warriors. The world's gonna start over, and this time we're on top. The sun will never set on the Wakandan Empire. All sorts of things that could be said here, but it seems to me that when talking about eights going to the low side of security, this is a great illustration. This person has more power than anyone else on Earth, and let's see what that looks like. Clearly, the director wants to show you we're going low here. Mm-hmm. You know, when I watch back that on rewatch, Jeff, what I that line of like, I know how the colonizer thinks, mm-hmm. but Injataka doesn't come up with anything new, right? Right. <laughs> he's and like none of this is even his idea. He's doing what he's trained to do. We will see this. I want to put a special pin in this. When we look at the other characters, Magneto, Khan, and the rest. All of them struggle right here. The They have been abused for too long, and they see strength in their abuser, and then they take on the characteristics and methods of those who have hurt them. Hmm. And Magneto does it, Khan does it. And, and and it's the myth of redemptive violence. Like, all, like there's nothing creative or... And we talked about this with, with Thanos, right? Like, there's a problem. There are too many people in the universe. So the idea is to not double the resources, but to eliminate half the population. Mm-hmm. And I think like this is a, a temptation that I see with a lot of eights I know, which is to just double down on the what exists already, but for their ends and, and not in redemptive ways. Because mm-hmm. most of the eights I know are really people who are pursuing justice and redemption. Mm-hmm. And because they are so fast moving and so forward thinking, often they fail to hit the pause button to think of what what is different about my method than the methods that are already out there, except for I want a different outcome. Mm-hmm. And that's why oftentimes people experience them as folks who are just running over other people because they don't see a different like it's the same 
methodology, which is if you accept the conventional wisdom that Martin Luther King Jr. was an eight, what's remarkable about that is the, the idea, he said, we have to use different methods yep. to reach a redemptive end and not just use uh, their same, because I, I don't know what Malcolm X was or you know um, some of the leaders of the Black Panther movement, but to use the same methods didn't seem to produce the same lasting impact. Yep. The low side of eight for me here to build on that is that I'm going to help my people in whatever way it takes. And the, the two-ness, you're going to security, you're landing in two, you're going to help, but then there's a very clear delineation between who you're going to help and who you're not going to help. That's where mm-hmm. I think you know so much can be said about King's methods and but the I have a dream speech in particular is not about his people specifically it's about all people and the the eschatological element there um, of routinely drawing in everyone into a singular story it's the opposite reaction to what we see here so an eight at the high side of two comes to a realization that the greatest impact they could have is to love all others rather than particular others. Mm. And through self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Come on. Any other examples of that in eights? Of all things, for all of his shortcomings, here's another historic example, but but Lyndon Johnson's real interesting on this front in that he strikes me as an eight who torches his political party for the sake of affirming civil rights. Right. And it's known at the time that, that he's going to do it. And that's his, on, on the backside, after he's out of the presidency, he knows that was his play and that was the right play. And essentially that's where he stands for the rest of his life till he dies. I can't think of any other eights on that front that are kind of an all people yeah. move. I, th- I think Lyndon Johnson's a great example. So, so yeah, that's yeah. profound. Good. And and it's one of those things where you could almost say, like, if you just talk about orientation of time being future oriented at eight, the benefit of f- being like future, future oriented, <laughs> like, I'm not going to be able to, like, I'm not going to run for president because this is going to cost, the Civil Rights Act is going to cost me all the chips that I have, right? Mm-hmm. But it is so significant that it will be remembered not for 20 or 40 years, but for ever and yeah. that's that's worth it so me and lady bird are going to go back down to texas and just kind of live out the rest of our days like there is that um self-giving that's at two but without the need desire to be appreciated the ways that unhealthy twos want to be appreciated mm. and like and that's the that's one of the gifts that eights bring in a healthy space you're nodding teach oh yeah just agreeing with what he's saying yeah, see, I wanted to juxtapose the villainy here because we we clearly sympathize with this character, and yet it's the methods is is the misstep for him. Yeah, yeah. So Angelica is right about what the role of Wakanda in the world could be, and he is like he's right that Wakanda has abandoned the rest of humanity really in order to protect itself and that that isn't that they're essentially 
have this kind of passive complicit role in the oppression of people across the globe. Um, and that they've done that essentially to retain wealth and power for themselves. And he he's right about that. And I think at the end of the movie, we learn that he's convinced T'Challa of that when uh, when T'Challa buys the projects in, in Oakland and he plans to turn them into an outreach center. And when he uh, goes to the UN, right, he, he's conceding basically that Njataka was was right that Wakanda has a a wider role to play in the world. But what Njataka doesn't understand necessarily is how to kind of attain his goals of the alleviation of oppression, of the equality of his people without violence. Because I think I think part of that is that Violence is the is the path and the strength that that he knows. So his father was taken from him through violence. He navigates his way to through adulthood through violence. He enters power through violence. It's it's really the only way he knows how to navigate or approach the world. So yeah. he is not formed in a way where he can implement his ideology without moral misstep. The, this is a, one of the major pitfalls for eights. One of the things that can really get eights in a lot of trouble is that, that he is certain without having thought about it even that his way is the only way. That, that the path of violence is the only possible way to achieve his goal. And they're so certain that he won't, he wouldn't even consider to entertain another option. Mm. Certainty without consideration. I'm going to write that down, yeah. TJ. <laughs> that's a great insight. Because that's T'Challa's solution here. We can step away from the duel. This is your last chance. Throw down your weapons, and we can handle this another way. That's another option. Yeah. Right. And I think Ejotica doesn't know how to do that. Right. It is not the path that he has created himself for. Just look at his scars. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Moves uh, into the throne room where we see Nakia and Okoye who are seeing each other for the first time and they hug brilliant scene here. Nakia after, after they talk for a moment says, we cannot turn over our nation to a man who showed up here only hours ago. And Akoye, he is of royal blood. And there's a great back and forth here. He killed T'Challa in ritual combat. Does that really matter? Of course, because T'Challa is dead. You are the greatest warrior Wakanda has. Help me. Overthrow him before he becomes too strong. Overthrow. And Okoye says, I'm not a spy who can come and go as they so choose. I am loyal to that throne, no matter who sits upon it. What are you loyal to? Nikia says, I loved him. I loved my country too. Then you save your country. No, I save my country. 
and Nakia leaves. No resolution here, but some great ideas on the table. What's we're talking about here? What did we type Nakia as? As an eight. There's, yeah, there's been some discussion of her as an eight. Oh, okay. Two eights. Two eights dialoguing about political issues. That would be fun. <laughs> who wouldn't who wouldn't want to be in that room? Me. I would not want to be in that room. That's terrifying to me. That would be I love that room. That's my favorite room. <laughs> uh the going back to what you were talking about a few minutes ago, Sean, this Okoye here might be a good example of someone who is sort of self-sacrificial for others' benefit. Like she is she she clearly does not have any interest in in letting this guy be king. But the way that we do things, the rules, the oaths that I have taken, mm-hmm. whatever guides her is about serving Wakanda. It's not about what she wants. Right, right. And if you, like, I was actually having a conversation with a good friend today about a, another friend of ours who is an eight and how steadfast, he is about the things that are that are important to him, almost like blindingly so. Like mm-hmm. that, this is important. I've decided this is my mission, this is my call. And so Nakia's like, hey, when I when I joined the Doras, like it was about protecting that, being loyal to that throne and protecting Wakanda. And it will take yeah. it will it will take everything to move me off of that point. So even at the end, when you get to the final battle. She's willing to finally hit the pause button and say, even to her husband, right, the challenge isn't over. She knows that Njadaka is not a worthy king, but that is beside the point for her calling. Right. We'll bring this up later. She is totally loyal to Njajaka until she sees that T'Challa is still alive. Mm-hmm. And then she has permission to say her opinion. Right. And there's a great that, scene. I don't know if you guys saw it in your, in, in your research time, but there's a great scene between um, Okoye and Wakabi, her husband Wakabi. Mm. Yeah, and so Kugler talks about this. It's like, we were wanting to establish that they are husband and wife, but we felt like they had done that art. And she, in a vulnerable relationship where you are kind of open to your spouse in a way that you're not open to any other people, especially when you and your spouse alone, that's when she vocalizes to him, he's not worthy to be king. Like, you should not, she begins to question him. But man, like her commitment to what she has said, and this is actually one of the things I think is really aspirational and a benefit to other numbers that eights bring, is that the thing that they get, and it's just one or two things, the things that they are passionate and intent on, those things will happen. So at the end, in the final battle, when she faces down Wakabi, and Wakabi says to her like, Would you kill me, my love? Right? Yeah. And she says, for Wakanda, without question. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. right. Like, yeah. like that is like, like you do not come between uh, an eight and what they feel like is their God-given reason for living. Mm-hmm. The flip side of that, obviously, is in Jadaka. Like when that goes south, it's a world of trouble. Yeah. Malia, what do you see in the scene? I, I see split loyalty and this kind of these two people who had been or thought that they had been defending the same thing 
and are coming to realize that they are fundamentally defending different things and that Okoye is is loyal to um, a nation where Nokia is very loyal to a set of ideals as well as T'Challa himself. And Okoye is not, lacks the idealism of, and that kind of loyalty to ideals and ideas that Nokia has. Mm. If we agree with someone's aims... How do we still discern whether or not she or he is the kind of person we want to follow because of their demons? Exactly. So the part of Enneagram 8s that is a... Enneagram 8s have a God complex. Like, let's just deal with it, hmm. right? Like we, we talk about it in other language, like being, you know, feeling like doing my thing or feeling like they're the only ones who can do it. Like when you boil all that down to the stain, it's a God complex, but an unhealthy person with a God complex becomes a devil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And do you want to follow a devil because you agree with the ends? And yeah. that's one of the questions that black Panther is asking. Yeah. Akoya answers that one way and Wakabi answers it another way. And what destruction is wrought on the way to justice? Yep. And people of good faith have to ask that question, especially with what we've seen in America. Yep. But are we willing to go along with devilish ends to meet our determination of what is just? Mm-hmm. And that is an important question that we need to talk about. And different Enneagram numbers are going to be able to harness the power of the population for one end in a way that's going to be more destructive if they are in an unhealthy space. That is that is maturity to be able to say, here's the target, we can do this better, y'all. It's, it's unfortunately the posture of real unhealthy folks who... Violence doesn't solve problems. It just doesn't. I'll give you a hundred million right. examples. It doesn't solve problems. Um, it's one of the reasons that constitutional government is so beautiful is it gives you a means for real radical social political change by insisting on methods that are nonviolent. Well, your full-time philosopher yeah. And my part-time historian need to have a conversation one time about whether or not Please. violence solves problems. Because I think that would be really fascinating just to have that conversation. Yeah. Well, we cut to the family of T'Challa fleeing to the Jabari. I love this scene in terms of the tension, the political refugee tension at work here. Can I also point out I fully acknowledge that I might be late to the game on this, but I never realized why Nakia was so quick to remove Shuri and her mother after the challenge. It's because Nakia is a spy, and she knows what happens when colonizers take down a government. Mm. You come in, you burn down the past, you kill the royal family. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, that's what he would have done. If yeah. they had stayed there, he would have killed... T'Challa's mother and sister. Is that what burning the herbs is about? It's burning books. It's, it's, we're starting over. Yeah. Yeah. And Njadaka knows that a royal family member can show up, say, I want the throne. And then you got to take the challenge and somebody else can be in charge because that's what he just did. And so, of course, he, his next turn 
target would be Shuri because she's young and she's powerful and she has the best claim to the throne. Um, kind of building off that too, right? Like Nokia is the um, is the heir to one of the tribes, right? Like in the in the open in the scene where they're at the initial challenge, like she is she's standing with an an elder, but she's the 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 person with the standing to challenge for the throne. Mm-hmm. So she it's not only that she doesn't want to stay, like she can't. Yeah. Nakia, like, this is a smart move. Like, we've got to get the royal family out of here. Do we see this still today? Like, there's an overthrow of the government, and you've got people who are in charge of the royal family calling the U.S., like, on the bat phone and saying, like, <laughs> we need to get out of here and yep. to, uh, like, there there are some houses here in Houston that I am convinced, like, are, like, some rogue government deposed and they now live in, because it's way too big for a normal house. They got a huge fence around it. Why is there barbed wire? <laughs> I heard everything is bigger in Texas, though. Yeah, well, that is, that is bigger and bigger. I mean, this is one of the richest zip codes in the country, and these <laughs> houses are a good two, three times bigger than that. So... They all have Ukrainian accents. It's just, it's just suspicious. All I'm saying. You don't ever see people come or go. They have underground tunnels, maybe. <laughs> it, mu- it must be, and they're next to each other. <laughs> well, the family of T'Challa enters the mountains, and Mbaku again steals the show. Is actually what happens. Spectacular. <laughs> the scene culminating with uh, Agent Ross, who looks a little out of his element. Uh, is told you cannot talk one more word and i will feed you to my children i'm kidding we have vegetarians (laughs) i don't know if that's the biggest laugh of the the movie but it's a good one and then umbaku reveals that he has t'challa's still living body in ice and they are able to give t'challa the herb and he goes to the ancestral plane, and then we're going to have a dialogue. And this is the second time T'Challa gets a chance to talk to his dad, and he says, Why didn't you bring the boy home? His dad says, It was the truth I chose to omit. I chose my people. I chose Wakanda. And T'Challa snaps, and he yells not only to his dad, but apparently to all of his ancestors. You are wrong! to turn our backs on the rest of the world. We let the fear of our discovery stop us from doing what is right. No more. I cannot stay here with you. I cannot rest. While he sits on the throne, he is a monster of our own making. I must take the mantle back. I must. I must write these wrongs. Lots to discuss there. What you, what's worth talking about? This kind of rant or little speech really frames Indudaka as kind of a symbol of all of these people that Wakanda has abandoned. So he says to his father, like, you were wrong talking about not bringing back in Jadaka. And then 
like you were all wrong about isolationism, about hiding, about prioritizing fear. And he, and then for T'Challa more personally, he says like, I can't stay here with you. And not just like in the ancestral plane, but I can't carry on this part of the Wakandan legacy. I can't be one of many isolationist kings. Who also abandoned the diaspora. Yeah. There was noticeable, at best, hesitation in facing the truth about who Njadaka was. Like when, when he shows up in Wakanda, you can tell that, that there's, there's a sense of with, with T'Challa that I don't want to deal with this right now. And I definitely don't want to do it publicly. He, he would keep Njadaka prisoner and, and maybe interrogate him alone and, and not deal with this in a public way. That's it. There's almost a sort of, cowardice leveled there of not wanting to face this problem and in this resurrection he knows that while he has moved philosophically has moved to Njadaka's side he now knows that he can't run away from this problem anymore he can't hide from it at all Mm. well we cut back to Wakanda and Njadaka is preparing uh his military to advance and the battle is going to be about the technology and Wakanda and who controls all of the resources of this great nation and how that power is going to be used. Look at this, a handheld sonic cannon powerful enough to stop a tank traceable by metal detectors. We got thousands of them. The world's going to find out exactly who we are. And Eric is obviously preparing to move into the world. We see a ship launching, and then it is suddenly knocked out of the sky. And T'Challa alone emerges. And on the resurrection image, Okoye looks up and says, He leaves. And at that moment, she then looks at Njataka and says, Your heart is so full of hatred, you are not fit to be a king. Because she is suddenly released and free to choose sides because apparently the uh, showdown, what is it called? It's not called a showdown. Challenge. <laughs> the, challenge. <laughs> the challenge has not been resolved. And like back to the point of, of Okoye being like, this is also her, like she has permission to, to say what she thinks about Njadaka. Nj- and also this is her appeal to Okabe is like the challenge is not yep. over yet. Yeah. The f- requirements have not yet been fulfilled and we can reverse course now. Totally in character that he is attached to the character who is going to bring him security is going to fight for his mother and father who have died. And he is also, we, we said it earlier about Okoye choosing her country, but he makes the same choice here. He chooses his ruler over his his spouse in this moment, yeah? Right. Wakabi demonstrates not a loyalty to Wakanda like Okoye does, but a loyalty to strength. Yeah. Well, the army's split. Wakabi's army attacks T'Challa. 
One of the things that I really appreciate here, it's another understated thing, is that all the male soldiers have shields and all the female soldiers have spears. Hmm. I don't know what that's saying about gender roles, but I found that worthwhile. There's obviously a long battle sequence, and that moves T'Challa and Eric down to a set of train tracks under the earth. Might we say that they are battling on an underground railroad here in the culminating scene? Okay, so I want to say this because it definitely could be an underground railroad. I really like that. But like you have I'm an opinion so- about this. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I'm a I'm a Christian pastor, and so I want to confess that I have a bias to seeing certain themes that come up over and over again in storytelling. Right. Okay. And so what we have seen is the death, burial, and resurrection of T'Challa. And now we're going to see... Now, this is not a part of the tradition that I grew up with. I know where you're going. So if, if AIDS have a God complex, in unhealth, they become a devil. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to see the hero of the story battle the devil under the earth. That's a good call. Deliberately or not, is that not the story that's being told... No, the, I think the beats are there exactly. And the imagery's there. There's also, yeah, the meaning there is what we should take. There's a fight for all that those who are in the realm of the dead have done. What is our story going to be about? Here, if you're fighting under the earth and, and you want to spin it as this is the realm of the dead, then we're fighting over legacy and we're fighting over who are, what our people are going to be about, which is entirely what their dialogue is, yeah? Yeah, it's a fight over both past and future more than anything presently happening. Yep. It's what is Wakanda and what has it been? And has it been this flawed place with a lot to contribute to the world and a lot of beauty? Or has it been this kind of negligent and passive group of of people who have abandoned Mm. the rest of the world? And what is it, so what was it and what has it been and what is it going to be? And it's a fight not only over their ideologies and their visions of Wakanda, but about their, their fathers and what the, the, the mistakes of their, of their fathers and their ancestors means. Mm -hmm. Isn't it the case, you started here, if it's the case that Najaika wins he is essentially saying all that Wakanda is doesn't matter and needs to be rejected because I want to become like the rest of the world. And I'm going to do things like the rest of the world in order to control the rest of the world. And in that moment, you are destroying Wakanda. Mm -hmm. What the opportunity for T'Challa is, is if you win, you are in a position, as he said, in the realm of the dead, to unleash all the good that is part of his culture, his heritage, everything that he has learned, and be a benefit to the rest of humanity that apparently humanity desperately needs. And that's how, obviously, that's what the post-credit scene seems to imply. Do the people above deserve to be punished or redeemed? Mm. What do you do with heaven, right? Do you redeem the world or do you punish the world? And that's a conversation both... For folks like me, like in Christian churches, that's very active about what is the ultimate good. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a converse. This movie offers a conversation that's being offered on so many different levels. It's n- no accident, I think, this happens below 
below the surface. Mm. There's something going on below the surface that is going to have impact on what happens above it. That's exactly right. If you have ultimate power, what should the future look like is the question here. And obviously, if you go down that road, you can start to talk about theology and say, well, I mean, all of the critiques of Wakanda can be leveled against God. Why doesn't God do more Mm -hmm. for people who look like me? Right. And that is not an irrelevant question. That, that, that should be one of those questions that is highlighted. You got thoughts, Teach? I don't. This is the first time I've thought about the significance <laughs> of them being underground. So I'm, I just thought it was because that's where the trains were. Yeah, I just thought it was so they could do the thing, that Sturry could do the cool thing with the vibranium. Yeah. <laughs> like, like how else do you deactivate the vibranium suit? Exactly. It's, all, it's obviously with the sonic stabilizers, which are Under, powering the trains, are. which are that's underground. Where they are. Yeah. All of this stuff is new information to me. So. <laughs> Well, this is one of those things where my children look at me all the time and go like, you're going to try and get a sermon out of this, aren't you? (laughs) (laughs) Like, no matter what it is. You and you and mom both will look at anything and try to find extraneous meaning. (laughs) (laughs) The meaning's there. We just see it. That's all that Uh, is. Sure. (laughs) Well, T'Challa says... While the train is passing by and they're having this discussion underground, railroads going by, T'Challa says, You want to see us become just like the people you hate so much. Divide and conquer the land of state. And Jataka says, Now I learned from my enemies. Beat them at their own game. You have become them. You will destroy the world. Wakanda included. I think that is what the director wants to expose. This is the temptation for this character. And I think it's the temptation that eights should pull away from this movie and from the other characters. That is the temptation to become like them. Well, this is this is the argument against redemptive violence. If you use the same methods of your oppressors to overpower your oppressors, you're just becoming oppressors. His whole arc is directly reflective of, of what's happening. Like he does not want to make the world a better place. He wants to flip it upside down. He doesn't want to improve things. He wants to make sure his people are on top and his oppressors are on bottom. That's not better. That's better for some. It's, and that's vengeance finding its fruit. Right. Yeah, and it's that same impulse of these people hurt me, so they deserve to be punished. Right. And I'm just going to punish, punish, punish. Great move as we move back up to the battle on, on top. The Jabari arrive out of nowhere. It's the the elves have shown up to Helm's Deep. Going to bring a little bit of extra firepower here. <laughs> Umbaku standing on a rock. I just love this out of the heart of an eight. Holds up his... Uh, staff and says, Witness the might of the Jabari. First time. He hasn't gotten to say this, and nor have any of his ancestors for, for thousands of years. And it's like, now is the time that we get to show you that we are strong. Director's commentary, they noted that one of the last additions to the movie was they ensured that there were just as many female warriors for the Jabari as male warriors. As they come in, so you'll see that one scene of one of the female warriors coming in, and she she takes somebody down, and her face is fully in frame, and she's just. It's a great image. Anyway, 
You got thoughts? No, just okay. agreeing with you. Drop your weapon. Okoye defeats Wakabi. Would you kill me, my love? For Wakanda? Without question. This isn't just about them. This is about their two armies, yeah? Yeah. Because when Wakabi surrenders, the game's over. Yeah, he's the leader of the border tribe, and she's the leader of the Dora. Wakabi surrenders. It's again the case. Do you have any thoughts on this, Malia, in terms of there's there's obviously a lot of conversation about race in this movie, but there's a t there's a lot of conversation about gender in this movie, and this is one of the more important dialogues. I yeah, so the the female characters in this movie are kind of uniquely um, strong, and Okoye is not yielding to her husband like he does not have authority over her and so if she bests him then he just has to surrender and it frames them very they're framed very much as being of equal status in that society this scene in particular i mean as a character she's stronger than him just characteristically <laughs> I mean, because they don't even fight. He never steps on a car. That's true. Yeah, she steps in yeah. front of his rhino. And he's just like, I'm not doing this. Yeah. yeah. Well, there might be, is that his six, uh, is his six coming out here? He's detaching, he is detaching from Ninjatica in this moment. Yeah, probably so. And both playing on six's kind of attachment to strength, but also their prioritization of loyalty. He, he recognizes that Okoye in that moment is stronger than Injidaka. So that's going, she's going to be better protected. But also that she has a, a claim to his, to his loyalty that he, to go any further would be to betray her. Mm. Yeah, I like that take. I do as well. Under the earth, T'Challa stabs Eric. These are my least favorite ways for uh, philosophical discussions to be resolved is one person just stabs the other guy. And then apparently the dialogue over theory is, is won by one of the people. There was something specific that was said in, in, because I, I think T'Challa is trying to appeal to air to, to Njadaka in the midst of them continually fighting there, there can be another way. And, Njadaka basically says, no, I'm going to, I'm going to burn you to the ground and I'm going to kill everyone who tries to help you. And like, like there's, yeah, there's this moment that that's, it's pure, unadulterated, unfiltered, lustful vengeance. Mm -hmm. It is nothing but I am going to destroy you. And that is my whole goal. The world took everything away from me. Everything I ever loved. But I'm going to make sure we're even. I'm going to track down anyone who would even think about being loyal to you. And I'm going to put their ass in the dirt right next to Zuri. It seems like he has these other goals. And then here's this one moment where it's like, nope, this is actually the only thing he ever really wanted. The only thing that he wanted was to, was to destroy T'Challa. Yeah, because T'Challa represents all the things in Wakanda that he hates. Mm -hmm. Is is uh he has internalized the murder of his father in a way that the only satisfaction he can possibly receive is the destruction of the murderer. Yep. Even when it's the case that T'Challa is saying conversation moving forward and after T'Challa stabs him, maybe we can heal you. 
and it's still right. not going to be sufficient. Yeah. There is no redemption for me because this was my only goal. Uh, Sean, you got thoughts? I think that's accurate in terms of his his goal is your father took my father from me, so I'm going to take his son. Yeah. Yeah. And but I do think there is that like he knows T'Challa's character is like we can save you, but the consequence of that is like what to lock me up forever. Like he knows what he's done is worthy of reprisal even though he's done everything according to the rules of Wakanda. Mm. It's almost as if Njadaka has a sense of what I've done is not a virtuous thing, even though I felt like it was a right thing. That he's kind of exercising some of his own personal demons. Yeah. And he can do so through Wakanda because no one can match their technology. It's interesting. I mean, he's killed all of these people in battle. Like he talks about that. I've done it in Afghanistan and all these other places and it just doesn't satisfy. Mm -hmm. There's like a bloodlust in him that can't be satisfied. Well, it's, you talked about it with the, with the fives, like everyone going to five in an unhealthy place means everyone is an adversary. And like he, Mm -hmm. there is no future where you and I are friends because we, everyone is my adversary for all time. And maybe with time he could have come out of that, but in this unhealthy space, that's all he can see is that you and I are against each other. And he can't lose. Like he'd he'd rather die than live the rest of his life knowing that he lost. Yeah. Yeah, his last line is about control because to T'Challa comes to him and says, "Maybe we can still heal you." Jataka pulls out the spear, which means he's going to bleed out, and his last line is, "What?" So you can just lock me up. Doesn't want to be controlled. Uh, just bury me in the ocean with my ancestors that jumped from the ships. Because they knew death was better than bondage. Yeah, I, th- I think that's very true for many of the eights that I know. Mm-hmm. Like, rather than be, they, they would rather be dead than be controlled. Yeah. Yep. Do we celebrate Njataka's death at the end of this movie? I don't think so. I thought I I found it deeply sad. Yep. That's interesting because I found it deeply romantic. Ooh. And it may be because I am a three and I'm also an aggressive type, but I totally get the, oh man, I would just much rather not any, almost anything than to have my future decided for me. And this idea that like, because again, it's a family story that he is, joining the ancestral plane on his own terms. Yeah. He was a fighter. He cannot live another way besides being a fighter. And when the fight is done, when he has lost, the best outcome in his mind is to integrate his essence into the greater family who has already gone before. Yeah. Yeah. And I I did always love that line that, that death is better than bondage. And not only like do, do I think it, I think it speaks to his character and kind of his orientation to the world, but I think it speaks to the way that he sees other people, where he really he really would rather um, there be violence and bloodshed and his people harmed than have them continue to live this way in this kind of bondage. But I don't know that it it has to be romantic or sad 
I think it has elements of both. And I would like to, I would deeply like to see everyone redeemed. Right. The one in you wants to just make this all better. <laughs> Fundamentally at my core want to see everyone redeemed. I don't know if this is worth talking about, but it's a, it's a very, it's a deeply American way of thinking the death is better than bondage. Live free or die is all over, mm-hmm. you know, of the culture he's in, whether, you know, he might want to or not. I don't, that was the thing that struck me is that that's a, it's a spin on an American phrase there. And Jataka ends up having roots in the philosophy of, of the culture he's in. His Wakandan ancestors didn't die on the boats coming over to America, you know, um, it is like I, his his identification is with the another part mm-hmm. of the world that's not Wakanda. He he wants to pillage Wakanda for its gifts, but he is not of those people. Here, to talk about this. Then it has been the case that folks who, in his life have been they've been expendable, and yet here he really identifies. Maybe this is it. He identifies with the people collectively not individually perhaps because this is a very heartfelt i have a story i have a history these are my people and i want to be with them image i don't know that this was how he felt about his father it's interesting jeff i was having a conversation today with someone and we were talking about the impulse that a lot of people feel to return to the land Hmm. yeah right and older age or in death like where am i from yeah and like even if i didn't grow up there like that there's something about the texture of the place that says like and in my final days this is where i want to return to because yeah. this is where i come from i hear you and i hear a little bit of that and it i don't know how universal that is it's anecdotal for me like i can like I, I've, I've told Malia multiple times, they always laugh at me that when I die, I want to be buried in Pelahatchie, Mississippi with all the other Palmers. Mm-hmm. And they kind of joke about that, but like, I actually mean it kind of seriously. Sure. Like this is, I never, like, this is where, this is where I'm from. And this is where I want to go. Like, this is where I want my remains to go. And like, there's something there in, in, in Jadaka. This it's almost a final summation of, I want to be with my people. Yeah you're not really my people Mm -hmm. and I'm okay with that now. But like in the end, Njadaka doesn't want to be fixed. He wants to go home. Hmm. And he is a fighter from fighters and the people he identifies with are the ones who jumped off the ship because they were the fighters. Like the folks who arrived, for him, the enslaved who arrived in America weren't fightery enough. <laughs> you know, his people are the fighters. And that's who, till, till his dying breath, that's who he identifies with. Those are his people. I didn't think about that. When he's in the ancestral plane, he's going through his father's things. But that's where all the guns are. That's where the the things that they're, they're planning some sort of... of event and his dad what did i tell you about going into my things what did you find and he says the home ah yeah 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 he's finding the weapons is finding home yeah he's a fighter so i'm gonna play devil's advocate and 
if y'all want to just shoot me down after I say this, that's totally fine. I'm fine with that. I agreed with these things like nine out of 10 watchings. I'm on board with this take on Njadaka's death and one out of 10 of them. This seems like the coward's response to me because he would rather die than face the possibility of becoming better of changing at all he he would he would literally rather not exist than have to face what he's done yep yep and like he has he has no idea how wakandans treat insurrectionists like yeah. he he doesn't know anything about how their culture would respond to this because he didn't grow up there. At no point during his short reign it, does he look at the you know Wakandan sedition regulations. Right, right. He just he assumes right that that Wakanda is going to have a system of retro, retribution yep. and control. Yep, right. Which is really more reflective of him. <laughs> Yep. He assumes he assumes they'll do what he would do. Yes, yeah. that's what it yep. is. <laughs> I yeah. would rather die than be controlled when it's in like what T'Challa is possibly presenting is that we could heal you and build a relationship. We could be brothers. <laughs> yeah, and we could heal you it has multiple meanings here. Like, yeah, like we can heal your physical wound, but like yep. We can heal the things that have caused you to be like this because you don't have to be like this. Yep. So we've talked a handful of times about how justice is a primary value virtue for eights. Um, I think it's Harawasp. Sean might correct me on this. The who makes the distinction b- between injustice? You have one category which is retributive justice. That is, you have done something wrong and retribution needs to be paid in order to make things right. Justice is about making things right. But there's another camp, which we might call restorative justice, and that is you have done something wrong, and so the proper method of responding to it is to see this corrected in a way that has restorative power. And how you come to the question of justice how you come to the question of how do we make the world right, my country right, my family right? Oftentimes, we have assumptions. Do we punish for past transgressions? Do we meet the person and seek wholeness? Do you know what I'm talking about there, Sean? Yeah. Yeah. Man, and yeah. that is huge. Like, And that is, in every faith tradition, right, one of the things that's being hashed out is what we believe ultimately retributive Mm -hmm. or restorative. And everybody who's ever had a child, um, now see, I can get off here for a long tangent, so go ahead and mark the tape, TJ. Um, (laughs) But like um, every parent in every transgression with their children is having to make a decision whether to be retributive or restorative, right? And the falsity of parenting is consistency. I I heard that a lot when I was um, a young parent. Got to be consistent, got to be consistent, got to be consistent. Well, bad parents Mm. are restorative all of the time and never deal out accountability or consequences. And bad parents are always retributive all the time and only Mm -hmm. deal out consequences, right? Without 
regard for context and like what's going on in the world, what's going on with my children, what's going on with our family right now and what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so all of these all of these philosophies, and you could talk to this, Jeff, and faith traditions, yep. a huge chunk of what we're working out as people is whether to be restorative or retributive um, in justice and like everything that we can, in everything that we do as a society. And I'm glad you mentioned that and put that on the table because it's huge. Like you're right, TJ, he doesn't know anything about how T'Challa would handle right. this. He doesn't know anything when he shows up in the throne room. He has one mode and he assumes that mode for everyone else, which is one of the first great teachings of the Enneagram, right? right? Is that you have a lens in which you see the world and everybody doesn't have that lens. And you have lived your life up until the moment you heard this, thinking that everybody saw the world the way that you did and the scales fall off your eyes and you realize, oh no, they don't. And that's that's both that's a blessing in that now I can grow and be gracious and receive grace. But you're absolutely right, um, TJ and Malia. Like he doesn't know anything, right? But he assumes that they would do what he would do. I actually wanted to end before we we can cut back to Oakland here in a second. But before we cut back to Oakland, everybody needs to go on the record in terms of who is it that ought to take up the mantle. Shuri. 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 You got three votes for Shuri? Yeah. Mine mostly due to allegiance to canon. Oh, you're going with... Oh, okay, sure. I just know how uh, homogeneture works. I don't know this term. T- uh, what, what is this? Primogeniture? Yeah. Basic, uh, you, you know, how monarchies are passed down. Like, it goes to the oldest, and then after that, <laughs> you're oldest. Everyone else is way overcomplicating it. Like, she's just next in line. Are they Jeff, not gonna going to have a throwdown? Like, she is she going to step out into the water and say, "Who wants to challenge me?" I mean, that seems to be that seems to be the the process, right? So yes, <laughs> but nobody nobody's going to step out unless Injobu has some other children we don't know about. <laughs> They've taken care of him, and no, nobody else wants it either because they were all like, "We'll pass." <laughs> I couldn't find this, but when they cut back to Oakland, apparently the church that's behind them in the scene has special significance. And I wanted to say this is where Martin Luther King Jr. is buried, but but that may be wrong. But apparently this was this was historically an important spot. And T'Challa says, This is where our father killed our uncle. They're tearing it down. Good. They are not tearing it down. I bought this building, and that building, and that one over there. This will be the first Wakanda International Outreach Center. This is actually a fantastic image of retributive versus restorative justice. I'm not going to tear down this building. I'm going to restore this building, and that will be an image for what he's going to do with the rest of humanity and the world, yeah? So did you say that Martin Luther King buried there? There is a church in the background, and I heard that it has significance, and I looked up everything I could. I couldn't find it. but Martin Luther King Jr. is, is buried in Atlanta. Yeah. Malia and I have a great picture standing out in front of his tomb. Yeah. So we can send that to you. Is it this church by chance? Because that would... No. Yeah, I didn't think it was because I couldn't Atlanta, find not it. Oakland. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, I don't know if they're filming in Oakland. It might have been the case that they filmed it in... It, it's, 
It's not. We've been there. Yeah, that's how it looks like. They do film in Atlanta, though, but... Well, if any listener wants to tag us and say this is the building that's in the background, apparently it was emotionally important for the cast and crew and as they were filming. Yeah. There's a scene in which they have purchased the building and it's ending, and there's a kid who seems to be in the position of uh, Najatika who sees their high-tech craft that's come to pick them up. And this is a unveiling. We're no longer hiding as Wakandans. There's an unveiling of their tech here, and the kid says, Hey, yo, this yours? Who? Who are you? And that's the last line of the movie. And again, we've we talked about this a lot in the previous episode, but identity is all over this movie, and that's where they decide to end. It's open. Movie ends on a question. Who are you? Cut to credits. Right. Who are you? Like... I find that a great Enneagram question mm-hmm. because that's what the Enneagram is asking. And it's the what for question, right? So if people who've gone to law school ask questions like if a crime happened or if an accident happened or if there was an insurrection, God forbid, on the Capitol, um, <laughs> they ask the question of like what for or but what for? So is there a person or an entity that if they had not behaved in a certain way, this would not have happened, Right. And but for Injotica, the unveiling would not have happened. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what that means for everyone, particularly students of the Enneagram, right? If not for the crisis, you would never have come to reveal yourself. You would have never gone on the journey mm. to reveal yourself. So, like my like Suzanne Stabile says for me, like the the great gift that I had was that I had a huge failure before I came to the Enneagram, so I was open to it. Mm. And that has to happen for everybody, not necessarily a failure, but some inciting incident, right, that opens you up to growth and journey and becoming and revealing. And that's, you know, that's why teenagers so oftentimes grasp the Enneagram so much more clearly than adults is because they are in the process Mm -hmm. of becoming. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just I think that's a beautiful scene because what we are supposed to see there, I think, is a parallel of this boy playing basketball this little boy who was Eric Killmonger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he gets to see the world that Eric didn't get to see. Yep. All of that potential, all of that beauty, all of that power coming out of hiding. Like that's what that scene is for. That that scene to me is about that little boy playing basketball, not about building a science and arts and cultural yep. center. Exactly. Right. To push into the Christian imagery one last time, the the resurrected figure has now gone into all the world, and the first person right. that he elevates is is his enemy. Uh, here's the restoration, right? Come in for that person. I I can't help but think that this is also a this is a note for eights everywhere. Like we have this scene that, but for Njataka would not have happened. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And also, Unjatika could have been there with them. Yeah. So, like, thinking about eights and their their approach to life, you can and probably will enact change in the world around you. That's the reality of who you are as a person. You can do it in a way where you're dead in the ocean and you don't get to see the change happen, or you can do it in a way where you get to be part of the change. Mm-hmm. It just depends on whether or not it's your way or the highway. 
last scene because you you know what I don't know if people saw this but there was an end credits scene in this movie. There's a mid credit scene. Mid credits. That's actually what. There's it was also an end credit scene. Yeah, but can you? I I, I assume you know what the end credit scene is. I don't yes. know what it is. I know what the mid credit scene is. What was the what was the end credit scene? Uh, the white wolf wakes up. Oh. Another broken white boy to heal. Yeah. All right. The <laughs> mid-credit scene is super important. We find ourselves at the UN. The Wakandans walk in, and T'Challa steps up in front of everybody. My name is King T'Challa, son of King T'Chaka. I am the sovereign ruler of the nation of Wakanda. There, by the way, is the answer to the kid's question on the basketball court. And for the first time in our history... We will be sharing our knowledge and resources with the outside world. Wakanda will no longer watch from the shadows. We cannot. We must not. We will work to be an example of how we as brothers and sisters on this earth should treat each other. Now more than ever, the illusions of division threaten our very existence. We all know the truth. More connects us than separates us. Nice poke at nationalism. But in times of crisis, the wise build bridges, while the foolish build barriers. We must find a way to look after one another as if we were one single tribe. Movie ends with a man in the audience saying... What can someone like you offer the rest of us? With all due respect, King T'Challa, what can a nation of farmers have to offer the rest of the world? And the lead character looks him down and smiles. <laughs> Love that end. Thoughts on this uh, as we wrap up with this movie? Is, is, do, you think, do you hear that as a comment on American exceptionalism? I, I hear it as a comment on nationalism across the board. But I certainly think that an American director working for an American company using Oakland as a primary and the United Nations as a primary and talking about building bridges while the foolish build barriers is all over the last four years of America's dialogue. Okay, America. I think the question is really pointed when you have a white person act, asking a dark skinned person, what do you think you have to offer us? Yep. Um, when slavery created a billion dollar Yep. Economy. It's exactly right. The gifts of African-Americans in this country have routinely been dismissed. Yep. If you've read um, uh, The Half Has Never Been Told, Edward Baptiste's book, The Half Has Never mm. Been Told, the research done in that, like there is no denying the fact that African-Americans built the wealth of America. Yep. And I think one of the things that Kugler is trying to say is that you persist in this belief that white people built America. Mm hmm. And they have this paternalistic um, outlook on the rest of the world. But the truth really is that the wealth you enjoy is from Africa. Yep. <laughs> right? Yep. I, I, and I think that's just a very subtle splinter that he interjects at the end of this movie. Seems to be what the character of Claw represents in large measure, yeah? What was the word you used, Malia? I called him, I called him a culture vulture. But like the ultimate culture culture. Doesn't that not apply to economics? You know, it, it's not yeah. it's not difficult to see how capitalism works in terms of you create structures in which there's an a controlling authority who owns the means of production. 
but you're exactly right. The America is the most prosperous nation in the history of planet Earth because of the workers that have been stolen or kidnapped. What, 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 what's the appropriate term there? Enslaved. I think both those terms work. Yeah. Bang. Last thoughts on this movie. I think uh, Black Panther offers um, a lot, uh, a lot of a lot of questions about both individual and collective identity, and what type of people do we want to be? And I think the idea, the the kind of dual questions of like, who am I? Who do I want to be? Drive a lot of the development. Uh, or lack thereof of the characters and also I think it does a great job of portraying blackness and Africanness in ways that highlight positivity and the richness of tradition and the intellectualism and societal construction that exists there and has kind of been exploited or ignored. Bing, what you think, Teach? I have nothing to add that wasn't already said. <laughs> Malia, you're real smart. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sheldon, last thoughts? I, I think that wraps it up. I've probably said too much already. Well, we're going to sign off with Malia, but the rest of us late 30s, early 40s nerds are going are gonna to tackle the last three movies from our childhood. <laughs> You're so fantastic, Malia. I appreciate it so much. Have fun. Looking forward to talking again. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, we're going to move into three other big eight villains who have this same move towards fighting for their people and how that materializes in their lives as antagonists. The first was one of my favorite villains, and it's because I love Fazbender and McKellen so much. It's one Magneto from the X-Men universe. Real quick, IGN, who, which is a comic nerd site, has Magneto as its number one comic villain of all time, ahead of Joker and Venom, and I imagine for similar reasons. Like in Jataka, Eric Lynch here is a young man whose parents were stolen from him, who saw his mother executed, who sees himself as part of an oppressed people, whose vengeance moves him to fashion his skills, and we sympathize with that character. Right. That's a captivating character, and we see it here. There are two big monologues from this character in First Class and in Days Future Past, which could easily have been said by Eric Killmonger. The one in First Class is they're on a beach. There are two armies... The USSR and America have come together to slaughter mutants. Like, apparently, they're the real enemy here. And Magneto says, Take off your blinders, brothers and sisters. The real enemy is out there. I feel their guns moving on the water. Their metal targeting us. Americans. Soviets. Humans. United in their fear of the unknown. The Neanderthal is running scared, my fellow mutants. The USSR ships, the United States ships, they both fire <laughs> like a hundred missiles at the seven mutants that are on the beach. Any, any thoughts on Magneto as an eight in that language? Well, it really feels like he's he's stepping in at, at to sort of like take control of this situation. Now that my vengeance is over because this all happens because he finally gets to kill the guy he's been hunting. 
now that my vengeance is over, you all need leadership and I will take on that mantle because I recognize the real danger and I'm strong enough to unite us all mm. or to do what needs to be done. There is this sliver though. I think it's really interesting, interesting to explore, which I'm going to explore with some of my eight, my eight friends, right? Not that I only have eight friends, but my friends who are eight <laughs> of the line between vengeance and justice mm-hmm. and how they can tell. Like, I, I would love to hear from them because that's at play in both the characters we're about to talk about and in both Eric's that we have talked about is that what they call justice is justice a veneer mm. for vengeance, I guess mm-hmm. would be my question. Yeah. Eights, nines, and ones all have that target of making the world a certain way in the present moment, that the ones want to make it everything right, the nines want to make everything calm, and the eights want to make everything... That's where the justice comes in. Is it fairness? Is it? Mm-hmm. Is it everything is constructed a certain way? Is it... I can see how the one and the nine would process that. I think you're exactly right to want to ask that question of eights. How do you see the image of, of the world around you being made right? And maybe the vengeance is the, the real temptation there, yeah? And that someone has to pay, yeah. right? So if you... Um, I can't remember exactly who it was I heard talk about eights. If you like divvy out the number of Enneagram eights who had who suffered childhood abuse, mm-hmm. right? That it's disproportionate okay. for people who take that on. Is there a part of that, that of what they call justice that is striking back against their abuser? Sure. Hmm. And I don't, I don't know. Like I don't, I wouldn't presume to say one way or the other, but I do think I do find it fascinating and I can definitely see the possibility. Yeah. As a parent of an eight child, the what I routinely see is that this is it, it may be the case that it it is nurtured in there at some point. Presently, giving a name to the temptation is real common in our house in terms of just saying something went wrong, you want to get vengeance. Hmm. This needs to be named, and you need to know that when things go wrong, and this is the feeling that emerges in your heart. You need to be able to name that so that you can deal with it in wise ways. It's just all over our language <laughs> as parents. We, TJ has said this frequently, that eights express most of their emotions as anger. And that, and that might... So what were you going to say? Triad-wise, right? In every triad, one number takes that primary emotion and focuses it outward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One number takes that primary emotion and focuses it inward. And then that shock point, three, six, or nine, mm-hmm. takes that primary emotion. And there's always there's this constant interplay, mm-hmm. inward, outward, inward, outward, inward, outward, all the time. And so my wife is a one. Malia, who was on with us, is also a one. And the anger part of that is so directed inward, where for eights, the anger part is so directed outward. And so you mm-hmm. see that with magneto and his conversations with charles he his frustration with charles through all of his incarnations in the movies is always like how can you not see this and like eric killmonger there are so many ways in which he is exactly right 
And like, this is the inside of eights is that they see clearly what other people are doing. But the downside of that is they want to do to other people the thing that people are doing before they do it to them. Yeah, it's the before is important there, yeah. Right. Like, I clearly see that the injustice is coming based on what I have endured so far. Mm -hmm. And it's only going to get worse. Magneto, because of his experience as a child of the Holocaust, knows what people will do. Mm -hmm. There are thousands of men on those ships, good, honest, innocent men. They're just following orders. I've been at the mercy of men just following orders. Never again. And his tack becomes to do that to other people before they can do it to you because we know what they will do. Mm-hmm. Never again, right. both a phrase associated with the Holocaust, and it's also a great eight phrase on that front of, I will ensure that this will never happen again because I'm going to pound you into sand and you will never rise from the earth, Neanderthal that you are. Right, right. And that rage coming forth. Plus that, uh, you know, in addition, like that that bit of eights that that really deeply believes that they see what other people don't see. Right. Yeah. Um, like I, um, I'm frustrated that you don't see it, but I know that I, but I'm confident that I see what you don't see. I'll, and so let me take care of you. Yeah. And the frustration is really about resistance to me taking care of you for what you don't see than anything else. And embracing of perceived weakness. Like the, this, this is the battle that he and Charles have throughout their story is that, that he thinks that Charles insistence on working with the humans on giving the humans a chance is weakness that is going to doom mutants. One of the excellent things on that front, the eight that comes out in Eric is that he doesn't want to control Charles ever. He just doesn't want to be controlled by the humans that makes it real authentic to the Enneagram in that mm-hmm. it's not just somebody control, control, control. Magneto just doesn't want to be controlled, but is going to be very aggressive about ensuring that future enemies are put in their place now. And it's another piece of like, these are my people. Yeah. Like Magneto is dedicated to mutants, whether they agree with him or not, right. because they are mutants. Right. And so... Charles's status as a mutant allies himself on some level to Magneto, whether they agree or not. And you're either an, a mutant or not. Killmonger has the same orientation to the world. Like you're, you're my tribe or not. Yeah. Um, In Days of Future Past, he gives a real similar speech at the end when he lifts up the RFK stadium and surrounds the White House and has all the cameras pointed towards him. And he speaks to all of mutant kind through this technology. You built these weapons to destroy us. Why? Because you are afraid of our gifts. Because we are different. Humanity has always feared that which is different. Well, I'm here to tell you, to tell the world, you're right to fear us. That's a good, strong line. We are the future. We are the ones who will inherit this earth. And anyone who stands in our way will suffer the same fate as these men you see before you. To 
day was meant to be a display of your power. Come on, here it comes. Instead, I give you a glimpse of the devastation my race can unleash upon yours. And then we see pictures of mutants watching this on TV. Let this be a warning to the world. And to my mutant brothers and sisters out there, I say this. No more hiding. No more suffering. You have lived in the shadows and shame and fear for too long. Come out. Join me. Fight together in a brotherhood of our kind. And you tomorrow. That starts today. <laughs> Isn't that what Eric says? Like, we're going to show the world who we are. With me as your glorious leader. Does, is that what he wants? I don't think that Magneto has autocratic tendencies. I don't think so either. I, I, think that, I don't think he wants to be the leader, but he will be if necessary. Yeah. Obviously, a similar temptation, though. Yeah. I've seen people I care about who are just like me be abused for way too long, both in terms of being a Jewish man and in terms of being a mutant. And a lot of the, the places that they took the X-Men dialogue feels like he's talking about queer sexuality in terms of the, the sort of language that they use for how mutants are internalizing their ostracism is that way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Same temptation that... Killmonger had in terms of I've been hurt by these people and I will hurt them in the same way that they hurt me. Mm -hmm. Magneto has a genocidal posture towards Homo sapiens. Yeah, he, he does. But in his own mind, it is for the preservation of mutants. Yep. And because he believes mutants are the future, it's also for the preservation of the future, a future life. Mm -hmm. Like this crazy idea that, hey, you're going to kill us, but we're your future. So for the life of the planet, um, we will intervene. We will do to you before you can do to us. Future problem solver. Definitely a future orientation to time. Yeah. I also think like it, within the comparison, like I, I really think that Magneto is just a more mature person yeah. than Killmonger ever was. Yeah. Like, like showing Killmonger's, like when, when Njidaka enters the ancestral plane, sometimes he's a little boy because he he's in that state of arrested development. Yeah. Just throughout the storyline every time we see Magneto, like he's always significantly more mature than Killmonger ever got to be. Magneto knows what he's doing in a way that Killmonger mm -hmm. doesn't. Yep. I think the times that this story arises is really crucial because what you have at play and I think what the authors of X-Men are trying to do originally is that they are saying they are having in the comic book world the conversation between Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Right, yeah. And that's that's embodied in comics. Yeah. There's, I, there's actually been a lot written about this, and you can scour the internet and find out more. But like that was very much a part of what this comic was intended to do, the conversation that it was trying to have. Right, is like, what is the path forward for justice? I think that's exactly right. I may have jumped too quickly to saying I read a lot of the the conversation, a lot of the language from the queer community in the mouth of Magneto. Mm. That might be because McCullen is playing the part. Is there? I mean, but it, it, but it is both. Yeah, and that's why I wanted to ask: 
is it the case that it's actually the same side of the coin? The the very same things that Black America has been bringing up and the language they've been using is very similar to how Queer America has felt in the language they're using. Is there a distinction to be made there? Well, I think that like as as the comics have developed and especially as as the movies have come out of that, what started as a an intentional reflection of the conversation between Malcolm X and uh, Martin Luther King. It it started that way, and as it continued to move and and be written and develop, I think it it expanded to encompass queer sexuality as well. I think particularly the newer movies with Fassbender are intentionally trying to bring that under the umbrella as well. Because it's it's not so simple as to say that, like, this is the one problem that needs to be focused on. Right. I was going to say, a, fr- a friend of mine um, who's pastor in Dallas says that there's no way to be consistently exclusive. Yep. Right. And so when you have one conversation, you're having all of the conversations. Mm. If yeah. consistency matters to you like that's one of the that's one of the things we learn from the writings that folks are doing on intersectionality it's like you can't really have a conversation about race and inclusion and reconciliation without also having that conversation about gender without also having that conversation about sexuality because it will then lead you down the path of well why not or what about X, Y, or Z. Yep. It seems to me, I don't know if you've experienced this, Sean, but the, as you were saying, the conversation about sexuality now, I think has really had an influence on the conversation about race in America because there are 40 year old white dudes who have to think about whether or not what they're going to do with their 18 year old daughter who is saying I'm a lesbian. Right. And it's not exclusive to how that 40 year old is going to treat people of different, different races and how he sees people with very, very different cultures. Yeah. And for all of us, there is a gateway. It's either race or gender, sexuality, one of those things that then provides us a window to see the rest of the conversation. Yep. So like, oh, if I miss this about this particular population, then these other populations, and, you know, I'm 46, and I remember the language that was pretty, not popular in the sense that everybody loved it, but was uh, ubiquitous about LGBTQ plus people when I was in high school and college. Yep. And how abhorrent that, like, if my own children could hear the way I spoke when I was their age, like, I would be embarrassed. Even yeah. watching pro-queer right. movies like The Birdcage right now, they don't yeah. hold up. Like, I get really yeah. tense. Right. The language is moving a thousand miles an hour right now. And, and I think that, you know, going back to... um I think this is part of the justice that eights see mm-hmm. is that sometimes they just get there faster yeah. yes. than everyone else. Oh, it's a good move. Yep. While other folks are worried about you know different passions and desires, they do have an ability to see. Like when when Magneto says, like, we are your future, this is the position that any thinking person has come to with LGBTQ plus issues in America right now. It's like Hey, you can think what you want to think, but for anybody 20 or under, mm-hmm. 
the majority of those folks, that's a decided issue. Right. It's an, it's a non-issue for them. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, some of the things that I thought that I thought when I was 20, if I were to say to people in our fairly mainstream evangelical church, they would look at me like I had two heads. Yep. That's, it would be like saying the earth is flat. It's again, culture is moving a thousand miles an hour. This is, this is one of the reasons that we're seeing reactive violence in our culture is because it's, it's a clash of a different sort. It's the death of a way of seeing the world is actually what's taking place. And when anything dies, it has death throes. And we can, we can look back through the centuries and see this. It's not, this is not new. But the reason that you see political violence right now is because your culture is dying. Yeah. You're not healthy enough to respond to it in wise ways. And that's why you're using violence as a tool to, to reestablish your some sort of control. Go ahead. Well, look at look at what like this is this is one of the reasons that, that Days of Future Past is so interesting to me, is because they in order to control the mutant threat. Mm-hmm. They destroyed the world. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> like, the world is a dark, terrible place. Right. Where mutants are under control now, and everything is terrible. Yeah, well done. That was, that was a good investment. <laughs> yeah, good insight. Yeah. yeah. TJ, I, I really had not thought about that. I hate all time travel movies. <laughs> <laughs> so I've watched Days of Future Past maybe a time and a half, sure. but I like I'm really read up on that. But like that's a that's a great insight. Like, but we are willing to burn it all down if we feel when our construct comes down. Yeah. Instead of rebuilding a construct that works, we would just rather burn it all down. Yep. Is that bury me in the ocean? I don't want you to heal me. On the flip yeah. side, yeah. Uh, yeah. Possibly, yeah. Go out on my own terms. Well, if you if you assume that we don't see the world as it is, but we see the world as we are, mm-hmm. then very much so. And it's our our own inner resistance to change and adaptation that creates hostility and violence in us. Like it's not actually what's happening. Yeah. Um, it's what we are resistant to happening. Yeah. Yeah. To rewind the tape. 60 years, this is what Lord of the Rings is about. It's about everyone in Mordor is the same and that that sameness is spreading into the rest of the world. The villain in Lord of the Rings is myopic. It is symbolized by this single eye that can only see one apparent, <laughs> apparently only one thing. Power. And is creating creatures that simply look like itself in this very unnatural way and it's destroying the the um kaleidoscopic beauty that is middle earth and the vast variety there it's a it's a it's a worthy tale for our culture want to talk about magua yep yeah so here's the thing no one holds serve against daniel day lewis daniel day lewis is arguably the greatest actor of all time but west studi who is a Cherokee American actor dominates this movie, The Last of the Mohicans. If you haven't seen The Last of the Mohicans, I love it. But New York Times recently released a list of the greatest actors of the 21st century, and they put West Studio as number 19. Wow. Mm. So we initially, if you haven't seen the movie, this is um, about the French-American War. The native population is having to take sides 
in this confrontation between the colonizing population, England and France, and all of the dynamics that are in play there. It's this pre-constitutional North America. And one of the characters, Magua, is a man whose family has been killed by the British and much of this story has him seemingly like a villain very much in the Njataka Magneto kind of mold where you have destroyed people I care about and I am out for your blood. And he does not come across when you watch it as being out of line. There's an early scene in which we don't know this yet, but the Magua character has infiltrated the British ranks and has positioned himself as a scout, as a servant, as a native person who's just easily exploited and will do what the British say because that's the way the British work. And it's so interesting to me that this character understands these people just use up everyone in their path. And so I'm going to play on their tendencies I'm going to infiltrate the highest ranks of power so then it when it's my time I will act, I'm going to bring pain and justice and that's essentially how this movie begins. So he's leading a, a company of British soldiers as well as the daughters of his sworn enemy. There's one particular British officer who killed his family and now the British officer's daughters are in a company being led by him over terrain that's mountainous terrain, and he's taking them from here to there. One of the lead British soldiers says to him, Scout, we must stop soon. Women are tired. Not here. Two leagues. Better water. We stop there. No, stop in the glade just ahead. When the ladies are rested, we will proceed. Do you understand? And then Magua breaks into his native language, and he says, Magua understands that the white man is a dog to his women. When they are tired, he puts down his tomahawk to feed their laziness. And the British officer, obviously not understanding this, says, Excuse me, what did you say? And Magua says, Magua said, I understand English very well. I love this as an eight move that I'm going to take control by speaking a language you don't understand and expressing everything I say in very confident, curt, exposing ways. So it's very eight, moving to five, right, to hoard information. Mm. Right. <laughs> That's yeah. a good one. Right, to be very guarded. Yeah. And yet to be focused on, on their mission. And like this insight is very, very eight, say, I understand English very well. Like he's not talking about the language. Mm-hmm. Right, he's talking about the motivation. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, like I, I, I know who you people are, and like his beef is with the gray hair who slaughtered his family. And this is very true of Eights too, thinking five or six moves ahead mm-hmm. of their opposition. So yeah, I, I love that scene when he just kind of cuts his eyes and goes, "Magua understand English very well," and he because he's leading them into a trap, like he's leading them into an ambush. And so they can't stop to rest because it's interfering with his plan. There's a line in Black Panther that goes down this road where Okoye begins speaking her native language. And Agent Ross looks at T'Challa and says, is she speaking with? And she says, when she wants to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Uh. <laughs> Asserting control. I love that in terms of I'm the five move there. 
Mm-hmm. I'm in stress. I'm going to push into that center. I don't think that's necessarily a unhealthy move for either of these characters. That it might be the high side of stress. It's definitely self-protective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And agendized. I mean, Magua is leading to an ambush, a timed ambush. Mm-hmm. And so they can't stop for the women to rest because he's got plans to to take the gray hairs, daughters, yeah. to take Cora, the prisoner, and, and all of that. Yeah. But, but he's also kind of just like, geez, these people. <laughs> you know? But also notice you know, the, like, the thing that he's criticizing is that that these men let their women control them. Oh, that's true. He is elevating the weakness of his rival. Right. And mocking it. And and the fact that they let them like he has such derision for them letting someone else control them that he calls them dogs. Mm. As the movie progresses, there's an ambush, the ambush is thwarted by the hero in his family. Magua has to reassess. Magua is in league with the French and goes to a French general. There's clearly a relationship here that has a strong military strategy behind it. And the French officer, whose name is Montcalm, at one point after they've talked about what they're doing and the fact that Magua wants to attack the British again, Calm asks, and here's motive. Why do you hate the gray hair, Magua? The gray hair is, again, the English officer who killed his family. Notice Magua's statement. He says, When the gray hair is dead, Magua will eat his heart. Before he dies, Magua will put his children under the knife so the gray hair will know his seed is wiped out forever. Does that answer the question at all? Nope. I think that's super interesting for an eight. I think that's highly in character. Yeah, right? And also, he he hates him because he did something that hurt Magua. Yeah. And if he has to tell that story, then he's exposing a weakness. That's it. Yeah. It's exposing a weakness. By the way, Magua does eat the gray hair's heart. Well, actually, I don't think we see him eating it. He certainly cuts his chest open and rips his heart out while he's still alive, which is a great scene, actually. In the (laughs) 80s, they could only imply it. (laughs) (laughs) There's another scene then with Mount Calm. What happens is the French actually make a deal with the English, and so there's a peace that has been created, and now Magua does not have the opportunity to enact vengeance. The French officer comes to Magua and is trying to make it clear that he has no power here. And Magua reacts to this and says, where's the sun? It has gone behind the hill. It's dark and cold. It is set on his people. They are fooled and kill all the animals and sell all their lands to enrich the European masters who are always greedy for more than they need. He's now talking not just about the gray hair, but about all of the force that's coming into the Americas. Mount Calm says, my son has been sadly injured. Who did this? And Magua says, Magua's village and lodges were burnt. Magua's children were killed by the English. I was taken a slave by the Mohawk who fought for the gray hair. Magua's wife believed he was dead and became the wife of another. The gray hair was the father of all that. 
Harkwood became blood brother to the Mohawk, to become free, but always in his heart. He is Huron, and his heart will be whole again on the day the gray hair and all his seed are dead. And the French officer says, my son, Magua's pain is my pain. And then he releases Magua with a strategy to ambush the British soldiers because they are on the move. Anything we're saying there? I mean, he's consumed with vengeance because of very real pain. The culminating scene has Magua having killed the gray hair. He's killed the English officer, and he has taken captive the two daughters, and he is presenting them to the Huron chief. And here is, here is an eight in security, it seems to me. He has done what he set out to do, killed his adversary, taken his children, and he wants to present them to those that he actually respects and say, here's this great honor. Chief says that his people have debated what to do about the coming of the Europeans since he was a boy. And it's like the whole tribe is assembled. The two girls are in chains, and it's almost as though this is a courtroom scene. And the chief is trying to ponder what he should do with Magua bringing these two women before him. And Magua says, now the French fear also the Huron, and that's good. When the Huron is stronger from their fear, he will make the new terms of trade with the French. He will become traitors as the whites are. Take land from this tribe, from the Abenaki furs and other tribes. Trade for gold, no less than the whites, as strong as the whites. And then the hero of the story, who's played by Daniel Day-Lewis, comes in, and his name's Hawkeye, and he questions this. And again, it feels very courtroomish. Would Magua use the ways of Le Francais and the Yengeese? Would you? Yes! That is, would he use the way of Europeans in the future? And Magua says, yes, and that's, and that's it. Same move as uh, yeah. in Jataka, yeah? Right. That whole thing hearkening back to, like, in your pursuit of justice, you have just become the thing that you said you opposed. Yep. Like, this, that, that scene with Kevin Costner in The Untouchables, right, where he says, I have forsworn myself. I have broken every law I swore to defend. I have become what I beheld, and I am content that I have done right. Like That's the danger when pursuing justice against really powerful forces, is that like powerful forces don't simply bow down or acquiesce. And so adopting their posture is easier because their posture is what they understand and what got them to where they are. And that's the danger of seeking justice without a radical commitment to a different way of being. I think this is why like the civil rights movement had actually a rule of life mm. to remind people, invite people into a different way of being as we do this. Mm. Because the easiest thing to do is just return violence for violence or force for force yep. and under the umbrella of justice. Because it is possible to believe in something so stridently that you don't care how you get there. Yep. Right. There is a fantastic scene at the beginning of Gandhi in which Kingsley is standing in a hall and he's a young Gandhi and he's in South Africa and he's speaking to immigrant labor Muslims who have been deeply abused by the English who oversee the country. And they are yelling out their grievances about how the English break into their homes, how they imprison them, how they 
um, torture them in prison. And his language to this audience is not only I, I hear, I hear this, I hear the pain that you have suffered. His move is to say, we need to take courage and be different. I praise such courage. I need such courage because in this cause, I too am prepared to die. But my friend, there is no cause for which I am prepared to kill. Whatever they do to us, we will attack no one, kill no one. But we will not give our fingerprints, not one of us. They will imprison us, they will fine us, they will seize our possessions, but they cannot take away our self-respect if we do not give it to them. Have you been to prison? They beat us and torture us. I stand in I am asking you to fight. To fight against their anger, not to provoke it. We will not strike a blow, but we will receive them. And through our pain, we will make them see their injustice. And it will hurt, as all fighting hurts. But we cannot lose. We cannot. And Gandhi's a superhero movie. It's He has superhero powers, apparently, to convince people who have been <laughs> deeply injured to to turn on a dime and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to opt for nonviolence. That is way more impressive than flying or shooting lasers out of your eyes. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that. That was, I just like Condi. Hawkeye, the Daniel Day Lewis character pushes into this becoming the evil. He says, would the Huron make his Algonquin brothers foolish with brandy and steal his lands to sell them for gold to the white man? Would Huron have greed for more land than a man can use? Would Huron fool Seneca to take in all the furs of all the animals of the forest for beads and strong whiskey? Those are the ways of the Yengeese and the Francais traders. And their masters in Europe infected with the sickness of greed. Malgoa's heart is twisted. He would make himself into what twisted him. Great last line there. When you watch The Last of the Mohicans, it's almost like Killmonger in that like, you recognize that Magua is the quote-unquote bad guy. Mm-hmm. But not without justification. Right. Yeah, that's it. He's a sympathetic antagonist. Yep. There's another character who when he, I mean, here's a spoiler, but when he dies in the movie, I'm not celebrating. Man, when no. when Joffrey Baratheon went down, I, I had another <laughs> glass of whiskey and slept well. That's good. That's not yeah, how I'm feeling. You hate that kid. Like, you just hate that kid. Oh, my God. He should have won an award for big, that actor should have won an award. Because he'll never be in anything really again until we forget <laughs> who he was. Because everybody hated him. It's like, yeah. oh my god! He'd come on the screen and he was like, "I would." Sh- I, no one wants to strangle a kid, but we would all strangle <laughs> that kid. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's the worst. Any last words on uh, Magua? So many good eight villains are sort of like fit into a particular mold. And I like that we included Magua because Magua stands out a little bit more as like, he he doesn't have an agenda for making things better. Like he, he doesn't have a plan after the revenge. Mm. Like Thanos, Magneto, Killmonger, a lot of good eight villains. It's the taking care of you for your own good. Magua is hard on the revenge. 
Like it is for the good of everyone. Like we see that in, in one of those lines that we talked about, but like his thing is not to make the world better. His thing is to kill the, the guy who murdered his family. I'd be curious, like if we went through the villain list, how many of them have a plan for after the thing? Sure. You know, and Jataka doesn't have a plan for, he doesn't really want to make the world better. Yeah. He wants to exact punishment. Yeah, after the vengeance, what do you do? This is a problem with how human beings do political power in general. It's the people who are really good at revolution are the ones who end up being in control afterwards. It's an absolute fluke to have a John Adams and a James Madison rise up in our culture. It just normally doesn't happen that way. And it should be noted, like all of those guys, Washington, Jefferson, Adams... Now, you, now you're into my true specialty, oh, which is American history and revolutionary <laughs> history. So I, I, I'm, a, I'm a pastor and, and an author and an Enneagram talker by day, but my <laughs> true passions are American history and the space program. Um, you, you live in Houston and you are a space nerd, NASA nerd? Come absolutely. On. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you know, that group of men, and talking about power and aidness, mm-hmm. right? Um, so John Adams was probably a three. Okay. George Washington was not an eight. Thomas Jefferson was not an eight. Mm-hmm. These, these are men who had different kinds of motivations for their revolution mm-hmm. that were all over the map. We don't get to an eight typology in terms of presidents of the United States until much later. It's so true. And actually the system of government in the, in the United States is actually resistant to eights. Yep. I mean, it's actually resistant to that kind of seeing of the world, but it's very receptive to threes. Yep. Right. So the USSR is very receptive to eights. Yep. China's very receptive to eights. Um, lots of African com- countries are receptive to eights. And so um, in America, eights are not concerned about legacy in the way that threes are concerned about legacy. Oh, that's good. And most American leaders are very concerned about legacy. That's one of the reasons why people talk about Trump as a three. And I go, I'm really hesitant to call Trump a three because of his resistance to concern about legacy. Yeah, that's a great Um, line. And so um, what happens there in terms of power and uh, like Magua, Eric, Killmonger, uh, our, our next villain that we'll talk about, they are very concerned about power. What we see in the American democracy, especially early on, are people who are concerned about economics. Mm-hmm. They're concerned about success. That what makes America work early on is the fear of failure, not hoarding power. Mm. Now the as you were talking, the only two eights that pop to my mind in American history are both presidents during times of a massive upheaval and change in tension, and it's Andrew Jackson and LBJ. I can't think of any other eights off the top of my head. Teddy Roosevelt. Oh, there you go. Probably say as an eight. Well, they even there. That's a ma- uh, he might be a real healthy eight, but there's an incredible economic reform at that point. And Teddy Roosevelt's a person who said that America needed to go to war. Yeah. Every so often. Yeah. <laughs> just to just, basically just to keep us sharp. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Gentlemen, uh, I know that you will affirm this, that you do not have a heart if you do not cry 
at the end of Star Trek II. That you know what's coming. You you could you can say the lines alongside the characters. And when Spock dies, if you're if you're not crying, then you haven't been paying attention. <laughs> Actually, as a feeling repressed person, <laughs> Sean, do you cry at the end of, of Wrath of Khan? And I've only seen that movie a couple of times, partly because the earworm thing freaked me out as a kid. And like, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> like that's once you're freaked out as a kid, like it just always sticks with you. Uh, um, but. Partly because of, you know, the way the way it ends. And I remember my dad being in shock in terms of Spock. Yeah. And like as a kid, as a kid, when you're as a boy, when your dad is uncertain about something, (laughs) you know, like that's like throws your whole world into upheavals. Like you're the one person in the world who I expect to be clear and certain about things. And if you're if you're shaken then I don't know what to do, you know. That's hilarious. The earworms, man. I, I, know, I know that I watched it when I was eight, and that scene was hor- that That may be the first it's horror terrifying. film that I've seen. Cause... Yeah. <laughs> like, it's very obviously s- sort of silly now. Right. Yeah, in terms like, of its like, filming. Because it, it's so very clearly not real. Yeah. And yet. But it's still, like, it, it's... It it still messes with you a little bit. The, the worm that goes into your ear and takes root on your brainstem and then affects how you make decisions. Yeah, that's some. Whew. And, and I'm a I'm a I'm just a couple of years young, older than you guys. So I had all of this trust built up in Ricardo Montalban. Okay, uh, from sure. Fantasy Island. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah. came on after I went to bed, but long enough where I could see like the the introduction to Fantasy sure. Island, <laughs> and here is this very hospitable, open you know person who makes people's fantasies come true, and they have these realizations about the deeper meaning of life. <laughs> and then you get to the Wrath of Khan, and he's got like this fake chest <laughs> that they've implanted <laughs> on him, and like like my my dad is here, uh, unsure about what's happening, you know, in this whole movie. And I think everybody has like this latent fear of something getting in their ear when they're asleep or unconscious or something like that sure i I was shaken by the whole thing that's all i was going to say okay so khan noonan singh is a star trek character who is created around 2020 uh in the star trek universe and is a you know he's a genetically enhanced human being super soldier Uh, i love super soldier tropes give me some wolverine give me some captain america Give me some clones from Star Wars. You know, love, love me some super soldiers. And that's who he is in the Star Trek universe. And he wakes up three centuries later and fights Kirk in the TV show. I've never actually seen this TV show. But apparently Kirk wins and sends him to a planet. And he's like, you know what? I'm going to just send you to this planet where you and your people can live comfortably. You can occupy that planet. You can populate that planet. Your future will be good. What happens in Wrath of Khan is we find out that the star or a planet nearby blew up and it affected the ecology of the planet they were on. And they didn't have technology to escape. And somehow the Enterprise is in their vicinity. Some of the crew is down on the planet and they realize that they're on the wrong planet when Khan shows up and they have already battled Khan in the past and they're like why are you here and Khan 
says this, and this is so good as an eight. Imagine if you are in a position to demand nothing, sir. I, on the other hand, I'm in a position to grant nothing. Save your strength, Captain. <laughs> These people had sworn to live and die at my command 200 years before you were born. On Earth, 200 years ago, I was a prince with power over millions. Right, and even in the uh, in the more recent movie, mm-hmm. but it is about like setting his type free, which is very much like in Jataka and Magua and Magneto. The play for all of them is this group of people have been unduly imprisoned by the system, and I am their savior. It's a good way to put that. In the character introduction, there is a lustful quality to the vengeance being enacted on an Enterprise officer. The The language that Khan uses is he has these two Enterprise officers in his clutches. They're on his planet. He's a genetically, intellectually superior life form who has studied this planet robustly. And now he has his enemy in his hands, and notice what he says. Allow me to introduce you to SETI Alpha 5's only remaining indigenous life form. And it's this worm. And this is SETI Alpha 5 is the planet they're on. What do you think? They killed 20 of my people, including my beloved wife. Oh, not all at once. Not instantly, to be sure. You see, their young enter through the ears and wrap themselves around the cerebral cortex. This has the effect of rendering the victim extremely susceptible to uh, suggestion. These are pets, of course. Not quite domesticated. And as he's speaking, Khan is slowly dumping these little worms into each of the space helmets that the Enterprise officers had been wearing. And he swirls the helmets as though they're, you know, they're like drinks. It's like, here's a martini for you. And, <laughs> and then he places them on the heads of, of these characters. There's lots of eight energy here. Yeah, like he's, he's enjoying this way too much. I always see in Khan, in, in his iterations, like the painfulness of time. Mm-hmm. And really, I would say maybe the painfulness of timelessness. Mm. Yeah, talk about that. That the injustice that he suffers, like Im- imagine living a long time and having lost your wife, your your company of soldiers, whatever. The grief of time, which intensifies the desire for justice. Yeah. Mm. Because it's not only that you have to live with it 30 or 40 years, but hundreds of years Mm. and that you're as an engineered being your fundamental existence is itself an injustice that's fantastic on the enneagram front that's fantastic on the star trek front i hadn't thought about that because kirk's story is all about getting old the movie starts with him wrestling with the glasses and his last line in the movie is i feel young what do you do with aging is is all over this movie and here it's being internalized wrestled with I mean, this is one of the thoughts as I, as I approach, I mean, I'm not close enough to 50 that I'm really worried about it, but I'm close enough to 50 to see it. Mm -hmm. And part of the idea of the people that you love, what if you kept on living 
without the people that you love. Mm -hmm. Like death is actually a gift if you are already absent the people that you love the most. Yep. Hmm. And so the eternity of living without the people you love is an injustice. And that's what the, one of the things I think about, especially with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's portrayal of Khan mm-hmm. and the more recent portrayal of Khan is that yeah. he communicates the pain of how difficult it is for him to die <laughs> right. mm-hmm. um, in a way that con from the the first round of movies doesn't i got stuck on the the idea of the gift of death because i've seen two grandparents and two parents go through that experience of losing a spouse for the eight and injustice like i think that's one of the things like how much from injatica to magua to con to magneto losing his parents yeah man that energy is just rooted in grief come on mm-hmm. and I've, yeah. i yeah i think that says something really important to the rest of us about how we handle folks who are close to grief in those moments. Yeah. It's like really instructive. It's like, oh, like this, this could really form someone in a way that could be destructive to others if we don't teach them how to use this energy that it generates well. Yeah. Or in redemptive ways. It's a perfect word. On eights. Because is it the case that then grief gets translated into anger and the anger has to be targeted at someone and clearly this is the person who's responsible for my grief and therefore mm-hmm. I will enact vengeance. Right. Yeah. And like look at look at Khan the first. He lost and was allowed to live out the rest of his life on this planet. And because of things that no one could have possibly controlled, his wife died. Yeah. And he blames Kirk for it. Yeah. It's not even intentional. Kirk doesn't intentionally kill Khan's wife, and still he's the object of wrath. Right. Kirk has almost no part in his yeah. wife's death. <laughs> Sets him up for success and then goes and flies around the planet banging blue chicks. And right. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Comes back. Nobody, nobody could have seen that that other planet would, be, would explode. <laughs> Comes back and Khan immediately maroons him on a planet. It's yep. it's not just vengeance, but it's vengeance of similar type. Yeah, it, that's actually the line. Khan, you've got Genesis, but you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you, and I wish to go on hurting. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. And then, TJ, what does Kirk say? God! (laughs) I love it my favorite things (laughs) that just has such like dripping with vengeance all over it buried alive buried alive it's no fantasy island i could tell you that (laughs) (laughs) and then at the end of the movie he's like quoting moby dick about this language of vengeance and as his last breath from hell's heart i stab at thee for hate's sake, I spit my last breath at thee. 
Good stuff. All right. Any last words on uh, eights and villainy? This is what happens when you let your anger control you, eights. Don't do it. (laughs) You're better than this. Someday we'll talk about healthy responses to anger for eights. What are are some good podcasts where we've actually done that? I'm sure we've talked about this in the past. All of them? Probably. The the one on the basics on eights was probably a good. Oh, there you go. Yeah. Come on. Sean Palmer, it's always exceptional to talk to you. I love hanging out with you guys. Yeah, it's a blast. Next time we invite you back, yeah. you're coming on for a podcast on Enneagram 3s. Did you know that I wrote the book on Enneagram 3s? <laughs> What's the name of that book, Sean? 40 Days on Being a 3. I this is my new this is my new intro for anyone that asked me about Enneagram stuff. I was like, "Do you know I wrote the book on Enneagram 3?" <laughs> my wife who's an Enneagram 3 devoured it. Did she? Did she read it all in one setting? She or, took like, your she did advice. Not read it in Forty days. Did she? She took your advice and actually sought to to go through it slowly. Sought to. <laughs> I need to follow up with her because I actually don't know what the right answer is to this. To be honest with you, I, I will send any any Enneagram three a copy of my first book, Unarmed Empire. If they will actually honestly confess to having read it over 40 days instead of like sat down and like blitz through it because that's what, that's what I'm hearing from people. And I knew that when I wrote it and I think I actually wrote something about that in the introduction to really do it over 40 days, but I'm a three and I wouldn't have done it that way. (laughs) I, I think you have permission to take that as a compliment all day long. Well, I would be glad to come back to talk about Enneagram 3s or whatever Enneagram-related, movie-related, Marvel-related particularly. So thanks for having me. Thanks for having Malia. We really enjoyed it. It gave us a great time to sit down and watch a movie again together as a father and daughter. And when your daughter's leaving home in 18 months, any excuse oh, to do something together will do. Thanks. She was such a joy to have, for sure. Well, thank you. Very impressive. Yeah, super intelligent. And good-hearted. Hey, friends. It would mean the world to us if you pause, take two seconds, and write us a brief review, or give us some stars on your podcasting platform of choice. You can find all the links to all of our stuff at aroundthecircle.org. As we said before, Sean's book is available on on Amazon.com and is a fantastic read and well worth finding out. Sean, do you have a a website? Do you you put your work in a single spot to find? Coming soon, SeanIsaacPalmer.com. Website is in production. Bang. If you want to hear some of the things that Sean teaches on, he teaches at the fantastic Ecclesia Church in Houston, Texas. And, uh, yeah, shout outs to all of us on Twitter and Instagram are always appreciated. The best thing you can do, however, is obviously share this podcast with somebody that you love who is an eight who wants to take over the world, but doesn't have any plan for after the exact vengeance on buffoons who are in charge. (laughs) I was way too proud of that joke in my heart right there. (laughs) Music is by The Collection out of Greensboro, North Carolina. Although this point in time, I keep screwing this up because after the fact, TJ does such a fantastic job with music. It's probably the case that the music is either by Kendrick Lamar or by Ludwig Gorenson um, or Vince Staples. I mean, right? We're going. We're not going out to some yeah. just. It'll it'll be a smattering of different options. So. Something from the soundtrack of Black Panther, which apparently my daughter likes, that I just found out about. <laughs> hey, TJ. What's up? You got anything else? 
I got nothing, man. He's DJ Wilson. He's officially awesome. I'm Jeff Cook. And who you aren't isn't interesting. 